Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. In the lead up to the world being plunged into a second world war, the Japanese invaded China and subjected the country to a living hell of destruction, mass rapes, and deaths. A small group of Americans volunteered to become members of the Chinese Air Force and became known as the Feihou Tui, or the Flying Tigers. Led by U.S. General Claire Chenault, the airmen with shark faces painted on their plane noses destroyed 296 enemy aircrafts in less than a year, while only losing 14 of their own pilots. Sally Fee comes back by the woodpile this week to talk about her cousin, Leonard M. Butch Jr., who was a member of the Flying Tigers. Also known as Mish, the Airman's Adventures is told in a book called Leonard M. Butch Jr., An Airman's Story, put together by Fee and another cousin named Robert McClure. Sally gives us not only some insight into Mish's experiences with the Flying Tigers, but also some of her own memories of the heroic man. And we also end up talking about Sally's passion for jazz record collecting. The future may hold lots of changes, things will grow still I say. The music forever will be new, while the rhythm is red and white and blue. From what I read, China was very interested in bulking up their ability to defend themselves against the Japanese. And they were able to bring in Claire Chenault, who was uh, once with the military in the United States, was very, very knowledgeable about building an Air Force for the Chinese. And an Air Force was kind of a fairly new oh, concept. It wasn't even talked about as an Air In yeah. fact... Um, we had the Army Air people in the United States. It was just beginning. But anyway, Claire Chenault was able to work out a, a deal with the Curtis Aviation Group, who had been building planes, and Britain wanted Curtis planes. And so Chenault was able to involve Curtis to build a certain model of plane for the British and then bring over some other planes for China. These were the Curtis P-40s, that very recognizable shark mouth people associate with the Flying Tigers. And so Chanel arranged for these airplanes to be used in China so that China could develop air power in order to defend themselves against the Japanese. So now your relative that was involved in this, was this your cousin? My cousin was the eldest of eight children and had a brilliant mind, and he was always interested in electronics. He was interested in aviation, for that matter, and um, he came from a very patriotic family. And there was no question that he was not going to become a part of the military in one way or another. And he ended up going to study flying and, and get his wings, and it was right after Pearl Harbor that he actually received his wings and was able to join this AVG, the American Volunteer Group that later became known as the Flying Tigers. But he was uh, so good at flying that he was noticed 
and was selected to go over to China to be a part of that. He didn't know that that's where he was going to end up because everything was very, very secretive. His official name was Leonard M. Butch Jr., but when he was a child, that was a mouthful, Mm -hmm. and so it ended up turning out to be Mish. Mish. And so Mish became the family moniker for him, and he was born in 1919. I have two older sisters. We would make annual trips to Birmingham, Alabama, where he lived. And his youngest brother was about the age of my oldest sister. So they would match up and do fun things. And my next oldest sister kind of hung out with them. But when it came to me, I I was so much younger than all of his brothers and sisters. I never really had one of those cousins to call my own sidekick until Mish stopped by our home in Fort Wayne, Indiana in around 1954 for a visit. And it was the first time I'd ever met him because he was always off at war or in a career or something. And he visited our home. My mother and I sat there in the living room and he talked and talked and talked about his adventures and his time in Burma and China and India, and uh, I was so completely mesmerized, he instantly became my hero. So he became my cousin that was mine alone, Uh because my sisters didn't even really know him. He was significantly older than they were. What do you remember him saying about his adventures over there? Well, it was never about combat. The stories that enthralled me, because I was pretty young at the time, but the stories that enthralled me had to do with his time in, I think, India. And these do not appear in the book that my other cousin helped me put together. One of the stories that captured my my imagination was when he and, and his uh, regiment or whoever, whatever they were, were in a place in India and there was a large dining hall with a big tent canopy over it. And he had a, a superior, I don't know how high a level this man was, but the superior had trained some birds in the area. He would throw up a piece of a morsel of food and the bird would catch it and fly off. And boy, he thought that was you know uh-huh. pretty neat. And one day, I don't know why this ever entered the man's mind. He found a hot coal in oh. a fire pit and uh-huh. he threw that up in the air and the bird caught that and flew a short distance over the canopy dining hall uh-huh. and dropped it. Oh no. <laughs> and the entire <laughs> dining hall went up in flames <laughs> after that. So he, he didn't live that one down very much. <laughs> oh, another time in India that, again, as a young person, I was imagining this scene. They'd been on a train. The train was carrying troops through the hot, 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 I'm going to call it jungle. It may not have been jungle. It was just very, very hot. And so all of the men were out on a flatbed train, and they, they were so hot, they were just stripping down to nothing and mm-hmm. riding on this flat car with no clothes on and uh, 
in the morning, the train pulled into a station, and there oh, they no. all were <laughs> exposed, uh, pulling into that station. And I thought, well, that was that was pretty funny. But th- it was that kind of conversation. He just would reel off story after story. You said he was in Burma also? Well, they called it the China-Burma Theater, I mm-hmm. think, because a lot of things were happening across there. The road was being blocked, from what I understand, by the Japanese. Right. And they, the big problem was they couldn't get supplies mm. where they needed to go. And so you might have heard the comment of flying over the hump. And in order to get supplies from one area to another, they had to fly over the Himalayas through passes. Mm. And I think they might have been in, in DC-3s or the C-47s. And they were able to climb over the 20,000 foot Himalayas and so they were having to find little passes to go through and they were often fog shrouded and it was just incredible missions that they would go on just to get fuel and supplies Mm. through, uh, through the area to the troops. He flew actual combat missions for a very very short amount of time. According to his log he actually flew for as a flying tiger for just a little over one month. And that was something that I hadn't realized initially. You know, I pictured a, a career of right. years doing this. Well, that wasn't so because uh, the Flying Tigers didn't have that long of a, a history with, uh, you know, the AVG was the, the group of volunteers, basically, who went over to do this work. And pretty soon they were absorbed into the Army as the, there right. wasn't even an Air Force per se, but he did he did fly some missions, and one of them, in fact, was mentioned in a book by, I believe, Richard Ford, either Sharks Over China mm-hmm. or the, the Flying Tigers. And uh, so there, there were some missions with the Japanese, and they worried about the planes being able to fly against the, the Zeros or whatever mm-hmm. the, the Japanese were flying, but they did very, very well in maneuvering their way through uh, the combats, and and, uh, they had such a a good reputation against the Japanese planes that even when they went into some other areas where they might have been overcome, the Japanese already knew the reputation, Uh and they were less likely to engage them in in battles. So they had a a very good uh, flying record. On the land, in the air, and the sea, Let's swing out to victory for your home, for your life, you and me. Let's swing to victory. In every step of the way, flying from the United States over, none of them knew really where they were going. None of them knew exactly what their mission would be. In fact, they landed in I want to say it was Kunming, but I'm not even, I'd have to really look at the details of the flight. They thought that was where they were going to end up. And they said, oh, no, there's no base right here. You're going on to this other location. And it wasn't until they got off the plane that they realized they were ushered into a room and there was Claire Chenault right there. And he said, they looked like a bunch of ragtag. They'd been on the planes, Uh you know, for such a long time. They were not clean shaven. They were a bit rumpled. And to be in the audience of Claire Chenault was just awesome. They they were totally amazed. And then they were told that they were going to be 
you know, a part of this operation. And they, they couldn't believe it. They were just overwhelmed with the honor right. of serving in that capacity. Did he talk about China much? He felt that it was an honor to serve in China, that they were treated very well mm-hmm. by the Chinese. The Chinese were so happy mm-hmm. to have them come and help against the Japanese. Yeah, this is one blind spot we have when we teach World War II history in America. And I don't know why this is, but we know the atrocities of the Nazis, of course, but the Japanese were equally, if maybe not worse, in some of their, the way they treated the Chinese Americans. They were, were sadistic. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to look up the rape of Nanjing, probably one of the worst examples, mm-hmm. genocide and mass rape and beheading Olympics, they called them. I mean, it was awful. So I can see why the Chinese would be so grateful. They appeared to be a very a gentle people. They mm-hmm. were very organized. Mm-hmm. They were, they wanted to do everything they could to support the support they were getting from our military and uh you know, it seemed to be very pleasant situation. He had a variety of of experience as far as, as living conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, some were very good and some, some were not. There were so many areas where he did spend his time. You got the idea that there was a, a great variance, but not really a middle class no. as we know it. Right, right. There were either the elite, the, the people who had positions, or there were those who... Or not. I mean, China had went through civil war and the emperor had been overthrown. I mean, they went through so many changes that they were a, a couple famines, I think, mm-hmm. uh, leading up to this. So they had been hammered. Sure. Even before the Japanese got there, they'd had a rough time yeah, of it, I'm sure. Really? So. I have another cousin in Arizona who is a researcher, who is a wonderful source and resource of putting together books that, and he's a genealogist, so he he has so much at his fingertips and so much expertise in putting together the books. One of the things that impressed me so much was in this book that he researched to put together about Mish, actually found information about the other airmen who flew with Mish from the United States over, and he wrote a little paragraph about each of them to see, you know, what their place was in the war. So the book is is not just heralding Mish's adventures, but all those who were with him, as well as the family members and those of us. So is this available to the public, this book? Well, it certainly would be, but they would need to go through the self-publisher of Uh this book. I see. Um, And I could certainly make that information available. In fact, I would have to think that anyone who served with the Flying Tigers, and particularly with this group, would be fascinated because these experiences, and there's some photographs of them as well as the, the little biographies at the end, would be very interesting to some of the people who are are interested in in the flying tigers and we'll um, give out that information at the sure, end. Sure, that's about, that's yeah. fine. Again, my cousin Bob McClure, who is the researcher who really made this project come to fruition, 
He found so many relevant photographs that supported the adventures mm -hmm. that, that Mish went through, and it just helps you to imagine the journal. I had Mish's journal that oh, was wow. given to me by his widow. I remained very, very close to his widow. My husband and I would visit them, and then after Mish died in 1991, we continued a very close relationship with her, and she knew how strongly we felt about Mish and all he had done. So her mission was to tell his story. And it was mostly for the family, but anyone to recognize what a gentle man, a gentleman he was mm -hmm. in his whole life. The part of his military life in his journal reflected a lot of those things too that were very interesting. So she put those things in my hands so that we could go further with the story. So you read through it all? Read through it all, and there were so many details. Where you have the book open now, there's a couple of photos of them in Cairo, Egypt. That day, they had a time in Cairo on their way to China. Several days, I think it was. So he wanted to participate in whatever you do when you go to Cairo. Some of his friends wanted to go out and see the pyramids. And, uh -huh take a camel ride, and his description of the camel ride was really terrible. He said it was the roughest thing that he'd ever done. He almost lost his breakfast. He said it was it was really, really bad, but he appreciated the opportunity to see the pyramids and, and go out with his friends. And It was a thread that continued through his journals that he was simply amazed at the world. And this was 1940. 1942, you know, world travel was not as prevalent as it is today, and he appreciated deeply the opportunity to serve in, in this particular capacity. So we're looking at, I guess it's a map or a line of where they went. They were flying in the Pan American Clipper. This is a picture of the type of aircraft mm. that carried the men who flew out of New York City to Miami, to Puerto Rico, to Trinidad, down through Brazil and Natal, Brazil, across the ocean to Liberia, Monrovia, mm. Lagos. It was a very interesting route, which yeah. I'm sure was planned to avoid any interaction with uh, the Japanese sure. or anything else. And Nigeria, Sudan, and then Cairo. And then Karachi, Ka India, New yeah. Delhi, Kunming. He describes everything in such detail that you honestly feel you're there when, uh -huh. when he's speaking in his journal. So in this book, there are excerpts from his journal? The whole journal is here. Everything is in here that was saved from okay. his uh, journal writing. One of the things that was interesting to me that as my cousin Bob McClure put this together, he felt it was important in the journal to not make certain corrections because Mish might use certain terminology and certain spelling that was just what you did. Like right. 
through might be T-H-R-U or something like that, or little comments that he might make were just the way you would talk. Right. And he wanted to retain Mish's voice when he was going through all of this. But there's a flight log that tells where he was on, on which days. And Mish spends a lot of time describing the mountains, describing the areas where, where he was. This part of his journal was recorded at, or was written uh, at the time when they landed at what they were soon to learn was their destination, which was Kunming. After the entourage drove them to the location, expressing their their great appreciation for their coming. He continued on, and this is Misha's words, after our baggage had been lugged off to some place, we were herded into a station wagon and taken to report to our CO. None of us had any idea who would be waiting to see us and assign our respective duties. We stopped before a mud and straw building in a military compound near the field. All about were Chinese soldiers on guard, making the place look like some sort of an armed camp rather than a military headquarters. We shuffled confusedly into a room and were introduced to the chief. He was none other than General Claire Chenault, the man who had done miracles in China. I was so thrilled at being spoken to by General Chenault that I was rooted to the floor with my tongue in the back of a dry mouth. He didn't seem to have a halo, of wonder about him, and soon I was calmed down enough to see that he was a quiet and firm man. His deep brown, almost black eyes had a steady, penetrating glance that seemed to be able to see right through a normal man. His words to us were that he was extremely happy to see us and would assign us to operate with three different AVG squadrons of the AVG until our group was organized. We were told two things in principle by him. Not to fool with any Chinese women, as they were all infected. <laughs> and two, not to talk about military matters before any Chinese, as the Japs had spies everywhere. We must have made a sorry spectacle as we came to a halfway salute leaving. His friendliness seemed to request a handshake rather than a stiff salute. On top of the poor, uncoordinated salute, we had a day's growth of beard that seemed foul. Undoubtedly, the Chinese AVG and even General Chenault's final impression of the new fighting force of China must have been doubtful, to say the least. Well, you know, in addition to the Japanese spies, you know, that time there was the, the Guangdong, which is like the nationalists, that they were the, the official government of China, but you also had the Communist Party. Chairman Mao was in a different part of China, but you know those two kind of got along a little bit, but mostly did not. And the Communists had many spies in the Guangdong. And so, yeah, so I can see why they were not supposed to say anything. Absolutely, but, yeah, absolutely. Because, so, you know, the, the Communists and the, the Nationalists were thinking, like, when this war with the Japanese is over, then we got to fight each other. Flags and souvenirs, a grateful Chinese people pay simple tribute to the airmen who have done so much to clear the skies over their embattled land. When I was preparing to put this podcast together, I had mentioned to our friend in China and frequent guest back by the woodpile, Peter Horse, that I was interviewing a relative of a flying tiger, and he became very excited. Here's Peter to explain why. I heard a lot of taps when I was young. I think because of movies or 
or TV series, I think they are heroes. Every boy around me wants to be one of them in the future. We got the kind of hat. Yeah, we love to wear it when I was very young. It's a hat like the flying tigers. Right, right. When you were in school, did they teach you about this? Actually, not. I'm thinking about that. Why <laughs> yesterday? So I, I, I found the the reason because the flying tiger、uh, flight, they were invited by the Chinese National Party, Jiang Kai-shek, especially、uh-huh. Jiang Kai-shek's wife. She went to America for ask for help. So. I think that's that's the reason. <laughs> because Mao never liked Jiang Kai-shek. Yeah, because、uh. you know after 1949, the government owned by CCP, so they controlled the Chinese history textbook. So they want to had Jiang Kai-shek's party's brave actions or successful actions.、Yeah. What what I understand that the CCP. Claims、yeah. that they almost alone defeated the Japanese, and、right. they, they never talk about, of course,、uh, the Guomindong or the,、yeah. the Americans or the British or the Indians or the Burmese. That's true.、Uh, we learn about that CCP make a much much greater contribution to fighting against the two Japanese army. But the truth is, is actually not.、Uh, they were. Hiding in a small place and watching what's the battle going on every day. Now you said some movies have been made about the Feihou Dui. Did the Chinese government allow that to happen? Um,、uh, I think so because Flying Tiger is not very ideology, not very political. It's okay to have this in yeah, the movies. It's okay, yeah.、Uh-huh. I want to thank Mesh. I have some photos of flying tiger. Hopefully, I, I can find with Mesh. I love flying tiger very much. When I was young, the people, the soldiers, are very very brave, and they give me a very good encouragement when I was young. They teach me I need to be a brave. I need to be a man like Superman to help people, to help country, to defeat the bad. Armies. Flying Tigers, the famous American volunteer group, wing their way across China for the last time as volunteers. For eight months, these Chinese signs have been the only insignia of the most spectacular and efficient fighting force in aviation history. So after the war, what did Mish do for a living? He was very, very interested in electrical engineering.、Um, he went on to school to study in electrical engineering. He went to Harvard, and I believe he graduated from Harvard. His interest was electronics, and he continued that interest through the rest of his life. Always tinkering. His wife would call it his war room. I remember being in there one time with him, and he had just been working on slow scan TV,、mm-hmm. and showing us some examples of what this slow scan TV. And when Mish talked, it was just talking familiar things to us. It was Greek.、Mm-hmm. He would assume that you had the same level of understanding of all of his electrical knowledge.、Mm-hmm. And he was an adept ham radio operator from childhood. In fact, when when he went off 
to the service, there were neighbors who were so grateful because his ham radio operations at home were completely messing up their radio signals uh-huh. at their own houses. They thought, finally, he's gone. So he did work in electronics, and he also worked at Wright-Patterson Airfield in Dayton, Ohio. At one time, and this is sort of an old-fashioned term, we knew he was one of eight people in the world who could read, program, and understand the mechanical brain, the front runner of computers, which now we can hold in our hands mm-hmm. in some cases. And this one, I believe, filled up two buildings at Wright-Patterson Airfield. Wow. And so he was very involved at, at the beginnings, you know, of, they called it the mechanical brain. And I remember growing up, they, oh, Mish can do the, read the mechanical brain and all. But it was just, it was his passion and something that he always worked with. I know that he worked for Honeywell for a while, but I don't know the details of that. And, and after his retirement, he and his wife, um, his second wife, Marge, traveled the world, always enjoyed traveling together. And um, in the very late 80s, he did contract cancer. His last years were, were very difficult years as he battled cancer and uh, was in, they now lived in Dunedin, Florida, and he was in the VA hospital. And Marge was by his side every single day and totally worshipped him and was totally devoted to him. The whole reason I even know you is because of, of jazz music. How did you get into jazz? I grew up in a musical family. My father was a musician before he married my mother. And consequently, growing up, my toys were 78 records. Oh, wow. And my, not as Frisbees, I hope. Not as Frisbees. Oh, no. I, I, but, but also, they weren't what I considered fragile. They were actually quite sturdy pieces mm-hmm. of shellac. But I had a little record player in my room. And I, I mean, I don't know too many three-year-olds who grow up playing You're the Cream in My Coffee and, and all of these wonderful tunes. And my father, who now worked for the government, still played his banjo and ukulele. So I grew up hearing all of the songs that he would play. And I think familiarity is a lot of what leads us to enjoy a certain type of music. And so being totally familiar with that music, um, it was very easy to always love it. Certainly there was a time in my life when that music, that era of music was really not front and center. And I went through your typical teenage years of wanting to play the popular songs Mm -hmm. of the day. And then when my husband and I married, we we were very busy raising our children. You know, music did not play a large role until we got to play our piano. And then I started to get these piano rolls that were playing the old music, which I loved. And uh, it really wasn't until probably the 80s that I heard a radio broadcast and stopped dead in my tracks because it was the sound that went back to my father's era. It happened to be Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. And I set out trying to find everything I could about that music. And it wasn't easy to Mm -hmm. find 
recordings and, and all. But after a while, you know, we began to find the different recordings. And it wasn't until 1999 I learned that Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks were going to be appearing at a place called Chautauqua, New York, at Jazz at Chautauqua. And we decided to go for one, we'll, we'll just go once. Mm -hmm. We'll just go once because I must meet this man who's making the kind of music my father made. And just one time, mm -hmm. and then it'll be over. Well, that was crazy mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. once we immersed ourselves in the music that was so-called from my father's time, the 20s and 30s, we were completely hooked. Mm -hmm. And then we began to find opportunities to attend other venues where that kind of music was going to be uh, played and enjoyed. And here in Indianapolis is one of the places that we ended up finding where we can enjoy the recordings and the, the live music, replicating the music of the day. And I'm very, very grateful that mm -hmm. my husband has as much a passion for this music as I do. Yeah, that would stink if you were having to drag him along. <laughs> just don't know that I would have been able to make all of those trips because I would you know, probably say, okay, well, we'll do something else. But right. fortunately, we both right. really, really love this music. Well, if you were to say, what was your favorite jazz artist? It goes without saying, Big Spiderback okay. is, you know, certainly, certainly very, very high on the list. Well, what's your favorite track by him? Singing the Blues. seemed to have everything and he was part of it Frankie Trumbauer was part of it for a long period of time that song epitomized the music of the day it just had everything but now we you know we embrace so many others Fletcher Henderson and uh, Duke Ellington and it, it just goes on and on it's right. a continuous discovery every time we're lucky enough to come to a gathering because we are with the top collectors in the world who enjoy bringing some of the most obscure, wonderful recordings for us to listen to. We're just so fortunate to call many of these people our good friends now. collection of records ourselves. In your collection, what's the, your favorite one, your most interesting one, and how did you get it? Oh boy, probably the most fun one I got at a dumb old garage sale, which I, I don't go to a lot of garage sales, but this one, if, it's, if I'm driving by, uh -huh. and it's easy. I always ask, any records, any sheet music, and uh, they say, oh, there's a box of records over there, and it, it was not a large box, and I went through, you know, one after another, one after another, and Perry Como, and mm -hmm. you know, your very typical 78s from the 40s were in there. And at the very, very, very bottom was a dusty little record, and it was Clarence Williams and his Bottomland Orchestra oh. doing Zulu Whale. <laughs> Man. And so for a dollar. And it's not an E plus like uh -huh. these people collect, but it's music to my ears. Right. Blue Zulu. Just hear him wail. Here's the 
I was tickled to death to get that one. you got to figure out, how does Clarence Williams get in the middle of a bunch of Perry Como records? And you know what? <laughs> that was something I would love to know the story. How did that one end right. up in that box of very 40s common? And here is this treasure, which I love to this day. I, I love that record. One of our good friends in the club passed away several years ago, who was an avid collector, just a, a stellar uh, IHARC member, lived up in Minnesota, and his family was trying to figure out, he was a single gentleman, trying to figure out what to do with his record collection. And there were ideas being batted around. Oh, it should be donated to some archive, and it, it should go here, it should go there. Well, one thing that we knew about this fellow by the name of Charles Swennington, he loved sharing his music. He loved playing his records here at Indianapolis and other places that he would go. And one thing that we began to learn about the archives that various libraries are so proud to say that we have the archive of this person's collection, some of them never see the light of day again. Mm. They get hidden away. Oh, maybe someone might enjoy something for research and they get special permission. Sure. It just wasn't the way Chuck was. He loved sharing his music and talking about his music. And after all of these people were tossing in their ideas of where his collection should go, I felt compelled to write to the family as a friend of Chuck's, also a member of IHARC, and having had the opportunity to visit various archives, I suggested that that would not be what Chuck really wanted for his collection. He would want it to be enjoyed and want it to be heard. And I recommended Ted Nelson, who is one of the most honorable dealers of, I hate to use the word honorable and dealer, that yeah. always sounds kind of edgy, yeah. but in this case, Ted Nelson has one of the finest reputation of helping put 78 records into the hands and sheet music uh, into the hands of people who will really appreciate them and enjoy them, and he's a fair person. And I just recommended to the family, I said, you know, Ted Nelson lives up in that area. He's actually handled some of uh, Chuck's records in the past. And I would recommend that you at least talk to Ted Nelson. Well, as things went, they gave Ted permission to purchase as many of Chuck's records as he wanted. And in turn, Ted put those records for sale at his venues that people who love that music were able to purchase them. And as a special thank you to me, Ted did give me a record from the collection, just, just as a thank you for recommending him and for being a friend of Chuck's, and it, it was a treasure to me. And I'll tell the world she's a sweet, sweet baby, suits me to a team. I'm Pickle Pink with a blue-eyed baby, and she's Pickle Pink with me. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Mish's book, you can either use the link found on this episode's page on podbean.com or brofisticate.com or go to prestophoto.com and do a search for Leonard Butch. And Butch is spelled B-U-T-S-C-H. 
In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Bro